Hello, welcome to the Marinopolis Addendum podcast. What you're about to hear is a conversation with Professor Dolores Chu. Professor Chu is a professor of humanities here at Marinopolis College, as well as a research associate at Concordia University. And I wanted to invite Professor Chu onto the show because of the podcast affiliation with Third World Studies Certificate. I'm part of the certificate, and、uh, we had an introduction to the Third World,、uh, which is called Third World 101. In that introduction, Professor Chu really demystified the term "the third world," as well as she explained some of the negative connotation behind the third world, and she also put the historical context back into the word. And I thought that was really interesting, and I really want to bring that change of perspective to the students as well. And that's why she's on the show. And just if something funny、uh, about all of the professors that's coming onto the show, I'm currently recording this intro when. We're going to choose our courses for the next semester, and seems like Professor Chu has a lot of nice recommendations by the students. And if she's listening to this, props to you, Professor Chu. Good job, and、uh, welcome to the podcast. So anyway, well, we're, well, welcome to the first episode of our podcast that we're doing. Yes, thank you so much for doing this. No problem. Professor Chu, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit, a bit about your background,、uh, where you came from? Okay, so I've been teaching at Marinopolis College for almost thirty、uh, years now. I teach history and humanities courses, so history courses are to students in the liberal arts program and in the social science program. And currently, I'm also coordinator of the liberal arts program. And、um, I. Grew up in India, and then I came to Montreal, where I did some of my university studies. Then I went back to India to do my PhD、uh, in history, because when you come to do your PhD, you're kind of wanting to work with a particular person, and so that made the the most sense、uh, for me. And so my、uh, upbringing and my academic and research interests have always, to a large extent, been focused on.、Um, The non-Western, outside Europe,、uh, and and so on, and I found, you know, when I came here, either as a student or then as a teacher, that there wasn't as much going on in that area、uh, in terms of courses or also just activities for students. And so, at Marinopolis in the mid 1990s.、Um, Several other teachers. There was、um, an Ethiopian professor who taught humanities, and he's also a great scholar. He's written many books, and I think he still continues to teach、uh, in Concordia.、Uh, he and there was another history and humanities teacher, Karen Ray, and、uh, Professor Maurice Dufour. And I kind of felt, you know, we should offer something to the students. So even outside their regular programs and courses, if they were Interested, we could open up these worlds、uh, to them, and、uh, we also felt that, that to some extent there was an ideological and philosophic bias. So, for Professor Milkias and myself, our background and our training and our interest、uh, made us really aware of the richness of the cultures and histories and traditions of parts of the so-called non-Western, non-European world. And also that these parts of the world today are kind of seen as backward or less developed. And we were so aware of the histories of colonialism and also resistance to colonialism and the vibrancy over there. So we felt there was a lot to to be done. And、um, so we said, okay, let's put together this、uh, certificate. At that time, actually, there were only two certificates at the college. Uh, and they were both、um, in the social science、uh, department, only open to students in social science programs. And we said, you know, we know that there are students, for example, in science who love、um, history and politics, and but they don't have as much scope. They can take two complementary courses. So we said, let's create a certificate and open it up to all students in the college who are interested. And of course, since it's A certificate. It has to have a certain amount of academic content, but we also want them to have a lot of much more real-world experience, and if possible, also some hands-on、um, experience. And so we knew generally the broad scope of what we wanted to do. And then when it came to like 
choosing a name, uh, the name Third World was the one that seemed to make the most sense. And we were very aware, again, uh, because our work and even uh, Professor Karen Ray, uh, who's, um, you know, American but grew up in, in Bahamas, but her own work was on the, the Caribbean, on India and China. And Professor Dufour um, was also like he had a critical approach to global politics. So we all came from this space where we didn't find, feel very comfortable with the dominant narrative. So we were already into what one could call other views and alternatives. And so Third World made the most sense because, um, you know, and I know you know this, but I, since it's a podcast, I, I will say it. Uh, the origin of the concept Third World went back to the mid-20th century and uh, decolonizing and uh, the emergence of revolutionary states that were all looking at building a better society for their their citizens. Now, how they went about it, we can critique. Uh, etc. And we might not all agree, but there was this vision. And there was also this vision that if they could collaborate in various ways, they could try to um, sort of keep out the great power interference that historically had held them back. So it was about building alternatives about um, societies that were much more responsive to the needs of their populations, uh, etc. Now, over the years, after Bandung, you know, not a lot of people remember that 1955 conference of non-alignment and, um, you know, forging a, a third path. And unfortunately, the name Third World now has got a bad rap, right? So Third World is now understood. And it's like any any word and anything we use, there might be an original historical context, but over time, it starts getting used in a different way, and then that becomes what is more popularly known and understood. And so today, you know, third world is seen as third rate, third best, and, and unfortunately, uh, people are, are not aware of it. So <laughs> one of the challenges in our certificate is to explain and deconstruct uh, this this term. And and we still sometimes meet up with, like, why do you call it this and why can't you think of another name? But we feel that this is a name that best describes uh, the intent, the objectives, the ethos, the exposure that we want to give uh, students. Uh, I understand. Yes. Um, I have some questions. For example, you have a lot of past experiences with your study here in Canada, but also in India. so. What strikes you the most as the difference between Western view on the third world and, for example, the rest of the world's view on the third world, or even the uh, the third world themselves? How do they view themselves as countries, and how, how do they view themselves as a separate identity from the Western powers? I I think it it's there's a huge variety, you know, because. Uh, if, for example, you just take the country I originated from in India, you know, depending on people's class backgrounds, their um, their exposure, their political views, they they don't all think the the same way. And I know if I just take that as an example, then I can assume in other parts of the world there's the same thinking. So, uh, for example, just with our name Third World Studies, some of the people who have not wanted that. I remember a few years after we started the certificate at the college, uh, there was a colleague uh, who was teaching in another department who came from uh, a Latin American country from Argentina. And one day she was walking down the corridor and, you know, now we, we don't have our bulletin boards, but we had our bulletin board and she stopped and she was reading it. And she got really upset and she said, like, you know, Argentina is not a third world country. And so she was reflecting what I would see as a reaction to the sort of uh, looking down on third world as, as backward, right? And so she resisted that and she, 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 didn't, she didn't agree 
with the name and she said you know you should you should have another name so you know argentina uh you know definitely had a colonial past and shares many characteristics with um you know for lack uh, of a better term you know the so called uh, third world but there are you know people there and and similarly in india you might tell you know my people who say but like india has you know really parts of it are so industrialized you know we have nuclear weapons how can we be a third world country so i think um uh, around the world there are people who view third world in a very negative way and they either might take it personally like i belong to this country but it's not third world and like i'm not a backward person so it's very personalized and then there are those who sort of embrace the idea of the alternatives and the and the critical views of status quo politics and ways of thinking and doing and look at making the world much more inclusive so you know we have this whole thing of you know third world in our backyard so if you take the stereotypical definition of third world you don't have to go to a part of asia or africa you could be here on the island of of montreal so we kind of play around with the name and coming back to your question i would think that um people in different parts of the world for example china you know so many billionaires and you know many chinese people say like we're not third world you know so like if you ask somebody today in a certain part of the world and they look around them they'll say no no we're not third world because like we have a place to live we have clean drinking water we have education so we're we have a you know and again china also there's so much variation right if you live in a rural area or a city or what the socioeconomic uh, background is um so it's uh, yeah it it's yeah it it's hard to kind of say definitively okay but um our our western stigma on the third world it's really associated with the idea of for example economic underdevelopment we imagine those countries tend to be um in your term would be backward but we when we think about the third world for example in parts of africa we think of them as undeveloped very primitive and this is also the reality as reflected by their well by their gdp for example or even by their hdi uh, so how how does the third world apply to those countries well i think there would be many people who would say that yes there are many countries in africa that are third world countries by all the 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 metrics that you've listed gdp and human development indicators because you know sometimes we say you might have a country that's low on gdp but has very good human development indicators and all that so by all metrics uh they 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 fall short um uh, and so they they are they are third world um again i would prefer not to use the term third world for that i would say i would use terms of um you know economically impoverished or um low uh, human development indicators i would try to use terms that are much more specific than a kind of catch all phrase which to me might be a shorthand so you know for your average person on the street if you say third world they immediately sort of picture something you know like a stereotypical notion of of third world but i would say i think uh we need to reclaim third world and we need to be more specific in our usage of of terminology and you know if we look at uh, the countries of africa i think now there's much more awareness of you know 3 to 5 million people who were forcibly removed so there was depopulation of africa and if you look back um several centuries you find again in africa different so you have you know people living as hunter gatherers people living in uh the civilizational mode like the whole kingdom of zimbabwe uh many centuries ago so so different but then with the arrival uh with the start of the 
trade in enslaved Africans, not that slavery begins there, but the large number of people in a very organized way, literally going into the interior and dragging people. And Africans were as involved in this. It's not just the bad Europeans. It led to a huge, uh, it's like, you know, you lose your human capital. So that's one thing. And then um, over several centuries, but definitely by the second half of the 19th century, you have intense colonial expropriation and exploitation. So you depopulated the country and then you come furthermore and stop anything from happening that might benefit the country. So everything that's done, mining, minerals, plantations, is to take the wealth out. And then you have this period of the 20th century where you're beginning to have decolonization happening. And in some parts of Africa, like where the Belgians had been, uh, you had this young, very charismatic leader, Patrice Lamumba. He gets assassinated. So in the second half of the 20th century, in this sort of heightened world of non-alignment, any attempt to forge your own path, if you were seen as, oh, Red, communist, bad for United States, CIA assassination, whatever it is. So again, Africa becomes like a playground and a battlefield for proxy wars that have nothing to do to benefit the population. So it's like centuries of like trying to come forward and then being pushed back, pushed back. And again, like we said, there were Africans, black Africans who went in and brought people to the coastal areas and sold them. So it's not to say there's something inherently uh, good about black Africans and something evil about white Europeans, but we can see this this trend where Africa has not been left alone. And yes, you. so when you assassinate Patrice Lumumba, then you put in place a dictator and you give him all kinds of money, which he then puts in his private bank in Switzerland, and you can say, oh, those African leaders, they're all so corrupt, they rob their own people, it's not us. You know, so it's like, uh, it's a very complicated story, and the more we dig and the more history we learn, and I'm constantly learning both as a teacher questions or some new evidence that comes out, it's just so mired, right? It's just like us living in Canada uh, for us who are not indigenous, we come here, We, if we go to school here, we learn, but we don't really learn the history of settler colonialism. And there are all the stereotypes of the indigenous people who don't pay taxes, or they are alcoholics or substance abusers. Uh, and the women who disappear, you know, they were sexually promiscuous. Like, we just kind of, there's this tendency, right? But the minute we start going into the history of the Indian act and the violence, it's unimaginable. Yeah, so third world is really just a stigma that encompasses a lot of things, but actually does not describe them or take into their background, like where the history came from. So that is yeah. why this, the goal of the certificate is to clear up the misunderstanding about the third yeah. world. Yeah, clear up and also like address, you know, like to kind of take this notion of third world as an alternative to like to be aware. Uh, but then how do you kind of change things? How can you as an individual or as a group, you know, be part of, of the, of the change? But yeah, you put it very well, very succinctly, uh, Henry. Thank you. Um, well, coming back to the question of Africa, um, Professor Chu, you mentioned Africans themselves participating in the slave trade. So I, this question naturally came up because I was listening to another podcast and um, the host was talking about a Japanese colonialism in China. So, so what is imperialism or colonialism really? Because it seems to affect a lot of different sorts of people. And it's not just confined to Europe as a whole, like we normally or the media often depict it as. Yeah, no, and again, that's a marvelous question. And as a, a student of history and as a teacher of history, I often try to remind my students that it's not like, not that some races or groups of people are evil 
and others are innocent or, or victims or skin coloring that if you're white, then you're, you know, an imperialist and a colonialist. And if you're brown or yellow or black, you are a good person and just victimized. I, I think it's, um, it's linked to worldview and outlook and uh, ruling groups and their uh, ambitions for power, status, uh, resources. And so, so Japan, like in that whole sort of gradual from the 16th century on, where there's European economic expansion in a way that was very different. So you had this huge, rich empires of India and China, totally self-sufficient, you know, global trade. People were coming from all over the world to China and India to get the tea and silks and porcelain and um, spices and cotton textiles. And, you know, China didn't need anything that they, they had woolen cloth. They had to pay in gold and silver bullion which they didn't want to. And so then gradually, like, if we can take over these countries, then we don't have to pay them, right? So this is happening. And Japan is sort of like these little islands over there, kind of ignored till the middle of the 19th century. And then you have U.S. Admiral Perry coming and <laughs> anchoring there. And the Japanese kind of sit up and say, oh, now they're coming for us. Okay, so let's send our young people off to Europe and learn you know, the technology and the philosophy and come back and modernize and westernize. And then, you know, you have out of samurai clothing, chopping off, uh, you know, top knots and wearing, you know, Japanese royal army uniforms and all that. But then, and they are looking west, how to get forward? Industrialize. But we have very few raw materials. But then there's mainland Asia, right? So, you know, attack. Russia, Russia was like the sleeping giant. Oh my God, the Japanese have come and then you occupy Manchuria. So all this to say that any group of people, any individuals can do this. There's nothing intrinsically good or bad. And therefore we need to be educated. We need to be alert. We need to be involved um, and so on. Yeah. So, you know, Japan gets involved in World War One on the side of the allies and then of course the interwar period again when I teach World War II I ask my students when did World War II begin and a lot will say 1939 when Germany occupied Poland and I'd say no 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 you go back to the 1930s Japanese occupation of China that's when World War II really begins you know and if you look at the casualties of World War II Soviet Union and China and students are really amazed because they think, oh, like all the bombing in Germany and Britain. So like, you know, European people no, like you look at it, um, you know, Russia and China, the largest number of casualties and then other other countries. So, yeah, it's so important <laughs> to know history, to understand and to take lessons. Currently, I'm watching a, a series on PBS called The Rise of the Nazis, and they've taken, you know, historical records and documents. They're using a little dramatization, but they're also talking to scholars, etc. And it's so fascinating, and you're looking at it and thinking, right now, this 1930 Germany, this is happening in so many parts of the world, you know? And so you have to know history. Yeah, definitely. Right now, I think a lot of the media is trying to portray just yeah. very stigmatized version of bad guys and good yeah. guys. Um, I think that's definitely a problem. So I want to come to the question of what contributed to all this stigma? Is it political rhetoric or like, for example, what stigmatized the third world as backward or give the stereotype of white Europeans as necessarily racist? So what what has caused the stigma of the third world? Well, the fact that uh, whether we like it or not, these post-colonial states, generally, if we look at things like GDP and human development indicators, don't score very well. So right away, they're they're categorized uh, over there. So the the stark realities uh, of these uh, statistics. The stock realities that are reflected in the statistics might mentally sort of make people 
categorize, you know, put them all in, in one bunch together. So a third world country is like tick off the boxes, right? Uh, and if you don't know that, that history of non-alignment and post-colonial development, uh, all you see is this statistical uh, reality. Uh, and you don't know, again, of the post-colonial interference of the new superpowers and the uh, post-imperial states or the current imperial uh, states. So that's 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 one thing. Yeah. So again, I think the preponderance of from the 16th century on of Europeans, you know, Portuguese, Spanish, British, French, Germans, Dutch, Danish, uh, to name the most prominent, but Italians also, uh, essentially people who would characterize as, as white people, even though there's shadism there. So there's this sense of there's something intrinsic to their worldviews and the way they developed that seemed to give them a sense of entitlement that they could just go and take, uh, etc. But that's why it's useful to bring Japan into the mix, because we see that it's not just that. It's like context. Uh, you know, um, desires, opportunities, and also to a certain extent, who are the ruling elites and, and what they, they are, are looking at and what they're, they're trying to, to do. So I would say the fact that we might have the sense of bad white people is based to some extent on, again, statistics, right? If you're looking at numbers of countries, numbers of, of people who, who are the, the white settler colonialists, who are the, the white imperialists, who are the economic exploiters, um, then we would say U- European, uh, but then there's, there's Japanese. Uh, recently, there have been quite a few books starting quite a few years ago, but just recently another book has come out, all talking about the East India Company, which was a trading company set up in, in England. But at that time, you had an East India Company in France, and East India. The groups of merchants, they come, they put their capital together, they, they rent a ship, hire a captain, you know, bring the, the products from the East to Europe, sell it at a profit. And, um, so the East India Company, the English East India Company is now seen quite widely in many ways as the first global corporation. So if we leave also, uh, that period in history and we come today, you know, we talk about globalization and, and today in many ways, we can say that it is corporations who call the shots. You know, like, yeah, you might have elected governments and representatives, but then you have all these lobby groups, uh, etc. And so who's really calling, uh, the shots? We go back to the 16th century or we come to the 21st century in some ways. Uh, our world is driven by this sort of economic quest and, and drive and that, that, um, emphasis on, on economics and everything else is, is, uh, secondary, you know? And it's very strange hearing, you know, what, uh, debates going on in the United States and they look at Canada and say Canada is a socialist country because we have Medicare. You know, like food, water, air, education, health, these should be like human entitlements. It's not about being a communist country or a, a country that wants all its citizens to be happy and live a good life should be able to provide this, right? Uh, but then it's framed because of decades of corporate control that, no, you have to pay for everything. If you don't pay for it, like it's freebie, you know, and some of these corporations get huge subsidies from their governments, but they don't, you know, they don't factor that in. It's like, no, 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 you you have to pay. You have to pay for this. I think the United States view of Canada as socialist is more a point of view from their more capitalist uh, kind of thinking. But something that U.S. markets fail to regulate is the fact that Percentage per GDP speaking, they spend more than any other Western country on healthcare, but their healthcare outcome is the lowest. So, what can explain this market failure? Is it pharmaceutical companies lobbying the government, or just something that's wrong inherently? Yeah, so, yeah, I I would say that so expensive because, like, as you you rightly saying, pharmaceutical companies or these insurance companies, etc., 
And on the other hand, you have this very poor country in terms of GDP, Cuba, which has like amazing healthcare, right? Because right away they are involved in, first of all, preventative healthcare. So you don't want somebody to whose diabetes to get so out of hand that they have to have their leg amputated. You catch it really early on. It's the kind of pre-birth to death system. Earlier in the century, we had gone, I think, three trips we made to Cuba to study education and healthcare alternatives. So we went with third world students. We fundraised to try and make it affordable for everyone. And we visited um, different parts of Cuba. And we went like from daycares to kindergartens to universities to maternity homes to polyclinics to old age homes. And there's this, even before a child is born, there's so much care taken. In the last few weeks of a pregnancy, a woman is taken to a maternity home where she can be looked after. And then in old age, so right through, I remember the day we visited they called it a polyclinic, but it was like a little hospital which did everything. So I think we arrived around 10 o'clock in the morning and there was like nobody sitting waiting to be seen. And so the students were saying like, where are all the patients? And the health workers laughed at us and said, oh, they, they came and we saw them and they've all gone home, you know. And then when we visited a housing complex, one of the people we visited was a doctor. He was a general physician and he lived there. And as people were walking by, he would wave out to them and say, hi, how are you? And then he was saying, like, you know, he keeps track. This is a heart patient. How are they living? How? So it's a whole different approach, right? And in the United States, it's like everyone's afraid to go to the doctor because it's so expensive. And then it really becomes, of course, when you go to the hospitals, because so much money there, you might find, like, compared to a hospital in Montreal, it's looks fancier, their equipment on every floor, they have MRI machines, whatever it is. But there's so many people who don't even get there. Yeah, so um, there is something we can learn from countries that are stigmatized uh, by a Western perspective, for example, Cuba. Um, but however, I think um, countries such as Cuba have their own problem, and maybe there's something we can learn the Western powers can learn from um, more, for example, Cuba. And there's something I think definitely Cuba can learn from Western powers. So what do you think would be a nice mix of ideology that, that can benefit both the people and the person in power? Well, you know, Cuba has now decades had huge sanctions. So it's a country that is not allowed to develop in its own way. This poverty is to a large extent enforced by the United States. Brutally, brutally. Why? Because Cuba dared to have a revolution and dared to nationalize assets that were owned by U.S. citizens. And so the U.S. said, we're going to make sure you are going to pay. So first of all, it hasn't been allowed to develop. But I think one of the the things that we often hear is about, you know, we're hearing it, say, with Hong Kong now, um, is that the so-called countries that are governed by left-wing parties, they tend to crack down on freedom and democracy. And to some extent, I, I would agree. Maybe if I go to Hong Kong now and say something against the Chinese government, I would get into trouble. If I stand on a street in Montreal and say something about the Canadian government, I'm not going to get into trouble. So you might say, you know, here there's freedom of expression, I can say it. But then you have to kind of look beyond it. So if I'm a really uh, if I'm um, an indigenous person in Canada who has to leave the reservation because there's no water now, there's no clean drinking water, what does it matter if I can stand somewhere? And then if I stand on a highway and block the highway, the government will send the army to shut me down. So again, it's like, and you know, the US has one of the highest rates of incarcerated population. So what is that all about? So when they go on about political prisoners here and there, yeah, that's terrible. People should not be jailed for their political views. But, you know, uh, what is going on? And, you know, just before um, I met you now for the podcast, I was recording a lecture for one of my history classes. So we're studying the Bolshevik Revolution at this time. And as the Bolshevik Revolution happens, 
there's um, uh, a reaction. So uh, Russians who are loyal to the Tsar and allies from outside, including Canada, all come in and attack the Bolsheviks, right? And so there's no time to sit down and say, okay, now how are we going to build this new state? What is it? No, it's like survival mode, right? So right away you find the Bolsheviks, you know, centralized power. They outlaw other parties. They have a secret police. And then after that, perhaps it continues and it shouldn't. But it's like, you know, it, it's, it's very, it's very difficult to, to say. But yes, I would say, uh, you know, people's views should be heard. Uh, people should not be afraid. Uh, to to speak and and so on because actually by having different views you can build something that's more healthy and and robust right um, so so that's part of a response to your your question yeah definitely so I think the problem in our society is really we are we're outlawing allowing some of the other points of view from other points of the world we are just think them for example um, in in the previous term, third world, so they are not good. So therefore, we are disregarding them as something valuable. Um, if that's uh, my understanding is correct. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, and also a lot of myth making. Like you know, if you there's a sense that if you repeat something often enough, it becomes the truth. You know, with the Black Lives Matter movement now, we are again hearing a lot more about the history of enslavement in the United States and how, at the end, the abolition happens. But the some of the the first police forces in the American South are leftovers of people who went to hunt runaway enslaved people. So the police is actually a descendant of that mentality. So you criminalize black people all the time, right? And so we're beginning to, to see that again, this sort of good, you know, America, the world's uh, what what do we often hear? Uh, Trump, the head of the free world, you know? Like, God, like, who are they talking about? Who is free in the United States today, you know? In theory, yes, but in practice, no. If you have a lot of money, you can be bailed out like Trump. I mean, this, this, it's on, it's documented, right? Uh, and then a poor person who can't pay their fine, you know, will get jailed. Uh, it's just. I think uh, the American judicial system has its own problems. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's... And the American the American dream, it's called Malcolm X. You might have heard of Malcolm X. Yes. Uh, he said, "This is the American nightmare. If you're a black person, it's not a dream; it's a nightmare." I I get where he's coming from, but uh, my question yeah. would be. How how do you think a marginalized group in a, uh, for example, uh, white majority society or any type of majority society, um, how can they be best heard? For example, you raised the question of uh, an aboriginal in Canada coming out of the reserve and blocking the highway and the government would send the army on, on that person. So how can the these people better group up and have their voice heard because they were marginalized in some way or are even marginalized now, for example, uh, Aboriginal people in Canada? Yeah, so if we're looking at Indigenous people in, in Canada, I think uh, there's much more awareness among, in, not awareness among Indigenous groups, that they weren't aware, but there's a better, there's a greater sense of now taking action and also, I think in the wider population, as more and more people learn the history and understand, there's growing support and solidarity. And I think if we're talking about indigenous realities, for those of us who are not indigenous and living here on this land and benefiting from it, we owe it to indigenous people to be there, to support to write to our members of parliament, to speak out, to stand there with arms linked and saying, we are also here. Uh, and, and so then the marginalized become the front and become the mainstream and to also change the narrative. Like recently I was hearing, you know, there's this, um, in the, in Nova Scotia, the Mi'kmaq, right? Who were, uh, 
catching lobsters and, and crabs. And then there was violence that broke out because non-indigenous uh, uh, fisher people had been told that during this time of the year, you cannot fish. And they're saying, but how come the, the Mi'kmaq are going and and goes back to historic treaties and rights and the Supreme Court saying that if you're fishing, not for commercial purposes, just like for your family and subsistence, and you're indigenous, you can. And then the fish, other fisher, non-indigenous, were saying, but this is not, not fair. And I heard, I'm, I'm forgetting who it was who was speaking, but it was pointed out that if work had been done with the non-indigenous people there early on to explain this, it wouldn't be seen as, okay, this is not fair, we can't do it, and why are you doing it? That there is a historic inequality and imbalance there, and it's very different. And so coming back to your question, uh, I think the onus to a large extent is on those of us who are learning, who are more aware, to talk to other people and inform them. And sometimes it's very exhausting for a small group that's been marginalized to constantly be doing the educating and explaining and and all this. So we have a responsibility and a, a burden that we have to take up. Okay. And this brought up a really interesting question is, what do you think of law and, um, for example, marginalized people's rights? For example, uh, we heard a lot about, for example, um, Mexican people coming over the U.S. border. Technically, they would be considered as uh, illegal immigrants, but there also is this point of view of uh, welcoming them into the American society. So what's the conflict between uh, the law, the judicial system, and, for example, the wish of us of helping other people. How can we better integrate them together so we can help the people at the same time, but also make sure that our law is upheld? Well, there are so many questions in that one question, Henry. So first, I'll just state the idea of, of law. You know, very often people think the law is justice. The law is not justice. The law is a status quo understanding and application of ideas and ideology that are put down in writing at a certain historical moment. So at a certain time, it was like, you know, if you didn't have property, you couldn't vote. If you were a woman, you couldn't vote. That was the law. It wasn't just, right? So, and law tends to be a little behind. So society changes and it takes a while for laws to change. Sometimes it's through a court challenge, sometimes through people lobbying, uh, etc. So um, the law and justice are not the, the same thing. Now, if you have a government in place that is uh, really committed to serving the people, then you would imagine that the laws that they would put in place. So, for example, again, going back to the Bolshevik Revolution, one of the first laws they passed was to take land from the Tsar and the church and the landowners and distribute it to the peasants, you know. The same thing happens in other countries where you have large peasant populations and revolutions. And so the landowners would think this is not this is not fair, this is unjust. But it's like who are who are the lawmakers serving? Who is the status quo serving? So that's one question. When you come to things like migration, uh again, uh there are a lot of, you know, there are concerns, okay, if you let a lot of People arrive at one time. We just don't have the institutions and the systems to, you know, housing and accommodation and all that. But it depends. You know, Canada, if you take Canada, it's a very, very rich country. Last week with the election of Trump, I heard on the radio a man who was part of a group called um, uh, Latinas, Latinos for Trump, you know. And he was, was speaking and uh, the interviewer was saying, but, you know, you came from from Mexico. So why are you opposed to people coming in? And he said, oh, but, you know, uh, those are South Americans. He was talking about Guatemalans. And so, like, we're always, we're always, there's somebody who's always lower down than us. So we've come in, we've shut the gate, and he said, you stay out, you know. Like, I've heard in Canada, uh, people with accents from the Caribbean, for example, saying we don't want any more immigrants. And like, what is this? 
you know? So the, it's like power and privilege and, um, you know, we have, we have the goodies and, and we know again, if we're looking at law and justice and migration, the, the more stringent laws you have, people are going to try and break them. Sometimes they die in the process. Uh, but it creates even more inequality because then they have to work under the table. There's, they're economically exploited. Um, you know, uh, we see with the COVID uh, situation that groups of people who are newer migrants, uh, et cetera, or migrant workers, it's spreading there because they're afraid to complain about lack of protection, uh, healthcare, working conditions because they might be fired or exposed as not having legal status. Uh, and it's actually harmful for, for everyone. So, you know, from an ethical and moral and point of view, very problematic, but also from a very commonsensical viewpoint. And But however, there is one problem with uh, illegal immigration is the problem that, uh, for example, they come into the country in great numbers. But, uh, for example, in Europe, there's a, a lot of flat, well, um, Maybe a lot of clash clashes with the the population already in place. Basically, the narrative is okay if they come in and, for example, we give them housing, education, healthcare. Uh, who's going to pay for all of this? Yeah. No, and for like the ordinary person on the street, I can understand. But again, migration in many ways is a symptom of more deep lying underlying problems. It's not a cause. Um, you know, there are some people who definitely want to leave and go to another country. They're adventurous or they, they like that culture. They just want to leave their family. But very, very often when you talk to people, they, particularly people who are struggling as newcomers, right? Or refugees. They didn't want to leave, but there was a war, you know, or the economy was so bad they could not survive. And support their families. So if people have a relatively comfortable, uh, prosperous, you know, life, vast majority won't want to leave. There will always be some who want to travel to see, uh, etc., who love New York, whatever it is. But the vast majority do not want to leave their traditional living places, their families who they might never see again. Um, it's very, very painful. Very painful. Okay, but how can we better help them if, for example, if they come in here, creates too much burden, uh, burden for some people. For example, they say, oh, it's all using taxpayer dollars to pay for their accommodation, for their food, for their education. So how can we, as you said, solve the problem in their countries first? So Maybe we can help them to build a better society and maybe even better partners in international relationships. Yeah, so that definitely is is one one way. Uh, but again, I think looking at facts and figures uh, can be useful. So when we look at um, uh, newcomers, we find that in most cases, again, there are always exceptions, they want to work. They want to work. And they will work two, three jobs uh, etc., just to kind of make a better life for themselves and their families. Many of them, and I know this from, you know, personal experience working in migrant communities, will never take welfare. They see that as humiliating, undignified, that I will work for, you know, and, and support my family. So yeah, there will be the, and then if they are not coming legally, it becomes hard to work in a legal way. So you work under the table and you can be uh, exploited. So the historic evidence of newcomers and migrants has shown that they work to establish themselves as soon as possible. And if they can't be very successful, definitely their children and grandchildren, right? So a lot of migrants come and they might have PhDs, they're driving taxis, or they will open restaurants because they have a unique cuisine and that's what they can do. But they want their children to study to go to university, to do well. Uh, and gradually, like if you look at Montreal, like certain neighborhoods have always been migrant neighborhoods. And then as the community does better, they move to the suburbs and the new migrant group comes in. You know, like today we hear about Park Extension. Historically, Park Extension was an area of newer migrants from Greece. 
And now many of those migrants have moved out. And now you have people from parts of Africa and South Asia there, uh, etc. And then they are looking at buying a big house in the West Island and, and moving and improving. So I think uh, there's another way, just like we look at human development indicators, we also need to look at um, uh, what is known as social capital. Social capital. If you're just looking in dollar terms, sometimes you're not getting the full picture, but social capital, that our society is enriched. When we look at all the you know, support workers during the COVID, these were all like new migrants, non-status people. They're doing the work, right? Um, whereas many of the, you know, more settled people are able to work online at home. No infection. Yeah, definitely. Um, then my question becomes, um, for example, even marginalized people already present in a population or whether it's uh, new immigrants coming to your country. There is a fear that they won't adapt the culture that's um, already present in the society and somehow they will disrupt our way of life that's already present. So how can we better change this mentality or how, how can we better integrate um, both versions of, for example, the co- cultural past of the immigrants and the, uh, the already present co- culture in the dominant society? It's such a fraught question, Henry, again. Okay. Uh, my view is that, you know, to quote Mao Zedong, let a hundred flowers bloom. All the different flowers, all the different colors, it's very enriching, you know, but there's a sense that, okay, we'd like to go and, and eat all the different foods, but then, you know, like, you know, when you're at home, you know, you have to behave in a certain way, you know, and otherwise. Um, so I think that there are certain double standards here and hypocrisies, and I can understand, like, there's a, Majority population, if you're talking about Quebec, Canada, uh, well, the face of Canada is changing so rapidly, but let's take Quebec, that, that has, the majority population has a kind of Euro-Christian outlook. So I'm using Christian more as a cultural marker than uh, a practicing uh, religion. Uh, and so a lot of things don't get noticed. So when you have a government that says, you know, we have to ensure that people in public service don't wear ostentatious religious symbols. Meanwhile, on the wall of the National Assembly, there's a big cross. It's like, wait a minute. Like, is that cross invisible? Of course, now I know because people were protesting, they've taken it down. It's like uh, quite a few years ago, there was a woman who had to go to court because she had a fine. She hadn't paid some tickets and she wore a head scarf. And the judge said, I'm not going to let you into the court because you're wearing a headscarf. And the woman went through the court system and now the judge has to apologize and all that. But I remember when I first heard it, I thought if it was a Roman Catholic nun who was wearing a veil. And I know now a lot in the West, Roman Catholic nuns. But suppose there was a Roman Catholic nun wearing a veil. I doubt that the judge would have said, I won't let you in my court unless you take your veil on. Why? Because that veil is invisible. So, yeah. So the Roman Catholic nun veil, most likely, I mean, I don't know for sure, but probably that judge would not have said anything because whether she was a Christian or practicing or not, it's like this is a nun. We'll be respectful to her, right? Uh, so when we talk about newcomers and adapting to the culture, um, I think it's like a, it's a very fraught question. I think we have to look at it almost like a case by case, you know, uh, basis. We can't sort of just say adapting. What does adapting mean? Because it can go to extremes. Yeah, I I pose that question because uh, me uh, I as a first generation immigrant, I also feel this um, adaptation towards the Western idea, but also feel attached to my um, country, and so. How should an immigrant best act in a way that will be accepted by the majority, but also keeps his identity? It's a very fraught uh, question, and I know a lot of, you know, children of migrant parents and first-generation youth. It's very, very difficult because, uh, again, I mean, people look at you and they see a young Chinese man who they assume 
is not born over here. And they can actually be wrong because we have Chinese people in Canada going back to the 19th century, you know. So there is this sort of automatic assumption about somebody's culture, identity. And then if you are a newcomer, then you must be thinking and acting in a certain way uh, and and all that. Um, At at a highly personal level, I would say, you know, uh, try to be a good person ethically and morally and respectful that, you know, you might meet people who don't always agree with you and that's fine and you can have conversations. And yeah, uh, I, I think that, that, that's, the, that's, the main, that's the main thing. And, um, you know, I would perhaps take it a little further and say learn the history of this land. Learn about the history of indigenous people. And um, that is ignored by, you know, the settler colonists and many of the descendants of the settler colonists. So who who would decide that Henry is a good Quebec citizen? You know, is Henry going to decide? Is it a racist person who's going to decide? Is it an indigenous person who's going to decide? And you can do different things to please different people, but you have to be at peace with yourself also and happy. Uh, And I think historically for me at a deeply personal level, what has allowed me to survive and live uh, and do things is finding other people who are like-minded, the kindred spirits, you know? Yeah, I think that's a great advice for any uh, immigrant or first-generation immigrants who are listening. So time's uh, coming up flying quickly. And one then one final question is, do you have some of the article recommendations where we can read more about the third world or people who are marginalizing our society? Oh God, there there are so there are so many books. Um, but very quickly, uh, for example, we've talked quite a bit about indigenous realities. There are so many books also, but uh, there's one book called The Inconvenient Indian, which is very well written. It's written with humor, but it's also um very in, informative and educational, The Inconvenient uh, Indian. Then writings by Franz Fanon, if we're going deeper into this notion of third-worldism, uh, you know, because he has this very good critique. Uh, and he's not necessarily the easiest person to read, but worth reading, or at least read articles about him. Um you know, he also talks about black skin, white masks. So again, coming back to skin coloring, there's nothing in, intrinsically superior or moral. Uh, it's because you can have people who, um, you know, act like colonizers, even though they look like the colonized. And another book, which is sort of taking us a little beyond our current purview of discussion. But again, this idea of looking uh, from a dominant culture or dominant political society into less privileged or less powerful, uh, a book called Orientalism by Edward Said. And it's a kind of a confusing because for most people, when they use Oriental, they mean China. <laughs> but he's using Orient in the way it was used in Europe in the 19th century, uh, where Europe was seen as the Occident and everything sort of west of from Turkey and beyond, was seen as the Orient. And uh, it's how um, with colonialism and imperialism, there comes to be a mindset and a worldview that uh, reinforces the colonial and imperialist power through writing and literature and painting, etc. Kind of what is known as the hegemony and mind control. And that's, that's important. Talking about hegemony and mind control, uh, Antonio Gramsci also comes to mind, the Italian Marxist philosopher who talked about how we are often unconsciously controlled through culture, media, what is known as manufacturing consent. So all the people who are supporting Trump, but who are so different from his reality, he's like a you know multimillionaire billionaire. These people don't even have a living wage and yet they are Trump supporters, but they have been hegemonized to believe that he is their champion. Yeah, so manufacturing consent, Antonio Gramsci, yes. 
and there are so so many books lovely novels um, all kinds of things okay perfect thank you well that will be our end of our conversation yes, thank you a very fun conversation this time yes okay have a good rest of the afternoon bye bye you thank you goodbye Thank you everyone for tuning in to listen. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we did during the interview. If you liked this episode, learned something, or just want to help out a bunch of students, please leave a review, write a comment, and share this on social media. If you are listening to this on YouTube, please subscribe and write to us in the comments. All the books and other resources recommended by the interviewee are in the podcast description slash video description depending on your platform. And depending on when you see this, you might be able to use our affiliate link to purchase them. The Marianopolis Addendum podcast is actively seeking local sponsors here in Montreal. So if you are interested, please contact us at the email linked in the description. All the profit generated by this podcast will go back to fund our club's activity. If we have any surplus, they will be donated at the end of every month to a local charity. This episode was edited by Henry. And the artwork is done by Camilla Huang. The producers and guests associated with this episode may express their opinion, but this podcast does not support any political parties. We only aim to bring different perspectives on different issues through the free exchange of opinions and ideas. We look forward to seeing you at our next broadcast. Cheers!